0: From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project.
1: There's no reason a quadriplegic shouldn't be rock climbing. If they want to rock climb, they should rock climb. We just need to figure out how to let them do it. Let's try a little thought experiment.
2: From where you're sitting at this moment, or standing or driving, wherever you are, look around. What kinds of objects are you using? Maybe you're sitting at a computer desk or listening through a radio or resting your hands on a steering wheel. Now think back over your day so far. How much time have you spent with objects? And maybe here it's even easier to think about the time you weren't working somehow with objects. You probably woke up to an alarm clock, turned on your computer, hopefully brushed your teeth, maybe got into the car to go somewhere, and it's hard to think of times we're not interacting with things. And even more than just interacting, we have such complex emotional relationships with objects. Few things make me happier than sinking into a big, comfy chair at the end of a long day, but it's also harder to think of something more irritating than an alarm clock going off when you're not ready to get up. Objects, and especially technological ones, can have a huge impact on something as basic as our mood. They hit us right at our core.
3: So if you're on your dreadful Model 732GXYI Nokia, the latest model or whatever it is,
2: This is Michael Shanks, a professor of archaeology at Stanford.
3: And you know, you're finding your way deep down those interminable labyrinths of its menu and you end up with some function and you press it and what does it do? It rings in the middle of a meeting, embarrasses you because you should have switched it off you thought you had, but you'd gone down the wrong menu line or something like that. What's that about? Well, it's bad design, yeah. It's about it not functioning very well, yes. But it's also about the artifact being incredibly bad-mannered because it screwed things up for you, and that is not appropriate.
2: According to Professor Shanks, today we interact with objects in a lot of the same ways we interact with people. We talk to them, get angry with them, adore them, find them fussy or reliable or happy or sad. And as in any relationship, we build up expectations. Usually we want our objects to behave well. There's a kind of etiquette and we mostly notice it when it's not there.
3: They're not warning you, you know, gently that, oh, by the way, you didn't really switch off the ringer. Um, You thought you might have done, but you didn't. So, you know, I might make a noise in the middle of a meeting. That would be more polite um, than doing what it does.
2: How we get along with our cell phones is clearly a pretty important part of our daily lives. They're a source of communication, embarrassment when they ring when they're not supposed to, and perhaps most importantly, fun. We spend inordinate amounts of time finding cool wallpapers, games, icons, applications, and ringtones, all things that make these objects ours and give them a unique personality. As technology becomes more of our daily personal lives and not just something we find at work, we have made the technologies themselves more personal. And in making them more personal, we want them to not just accomplish tasks, but to give us pleasure, to be companions, and to be toys as much as tools. Well, from KZSU in Stanford, California, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Each week, we bring you an hour of stories that explore a single question or theme, stories of every kind, documentary, fiction, memoir, academic sleuthing, and even ballads, all written and performed by Stanford students, fellows, and faculty. This week, no work and all play. We'll talk about toys and tools, why we're so fascinated with them, how they impact our lives, and whether there really is a difference between them at all. Our show this week in three parts. Part one, born into a world of things. We'll hear more from Michael Shanks about the history of design and whether toys are really as frivolous as we tend to think they are. Part two, enabling. Jessica Zarin-Kesson is the founder of a toy company that designs toys specifically for kids who are disabled. And she's trying to make play more fun for everyone by designing for the extremes. We'll visit her in her San Francisco studio and hear about how something as simple as toys can level the playing field far beyond childhood. And finally, part three, original sound. We'll talk to grown-ups, yes, grown-ups, who have brought play to a whole new level, taking apart toy instruments and rewiring them to create an entirely new kind of sound. So kick off your shoes, grab a popsicle, and let's regress a little. I'm Hannah Krakauer, and this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Stay with us. Michael Shanks is a professor of archaeology at Stanford, where he runs something called a Metamedia Lab. I think many of us have an image of archaeologists as being perpetually covered in dust, and Professor Shanks has certainly done his share of old-fashioned digging. But his interests now have a lot less to do with dirt and a lot more to do with design. The lab he runs looks at the history of design and tries to apply what we learned from ancient history to more modern kinds of design. A few years ago, his group was hired by Daimler Chrysler the car company, to help them figure out how people interact with the car interior and how Chrysler should approach designing new cars for the future. Why would a car company hire an academic archaeologist to help them with design concepts? In our first piece, Professor Shanks tells us why archaeology can be so useful in revealing just how crucial people's interactions with objects can be in making them who they are. For Shanks, objects are about so much more than work and play, style and function. They're about making us human.
3: Hi, I'm Michael Shanks, and I'm an archaeologist at Stanford. Archaeologists, uh, well, not every archaeologist, but certainly uh, my angle on archaeology is that, among other things, uh, we are interested in the history of design. And uh, the connection with Daimler Chrysler centered on a problem they face, which is how to reconcile the design cycle of a vehicle, a car, with the design cycles of the stuff that goes in cars, such as consumer electronics. Um, that was their problem as to how to put it together. But what really they were interested in doing was, yes, looking at the engineering problem of how to create a platform for consumer electronics that would work and attract people, but also they wanted to rethink the experience of mobile media in the car interior. And they thought, well, I convinced them that anthropological archaeologists who are interested in the history of design could help them think outside the box. The argument we made was actually quite simple. Uh, We argued that their understanding of people's experience of the vehicle was fatally flawed. They considered that who you are determines what you want in the way of a vehicle, in the way of an experience in the car vehicle. So demographics were their primary focus. They would figure out, you know, what the demographic of a typical Chrysler Sebring buyer was, user was. And on the basis of that, they would figure out what they should do with the vehicle, how to keep its design appealing to that demographic category. We turned it around and said, actually, that's not the way the world works. It's not who you are that makes you do certain things. It's doing things, buying things, using things that makes you who you are. Cutting a long story short, I think we have focused, not just as archaeologists, but as people interested in making and design, we focused a little bit too much on the artifact itself, that is, the form, the shape, indeed yes, the function, supposed or actual, of an artifact. I'm now much more interested in the processes of making and using things, because I think the processes of making and using things, of course, raises issues of function. But there's so much more to it because it's about the integration, the part that tools play, that artifacts play, in people's lives, which of course are not simply about performing function. They're not ever simply about going out, getting food, eating it, and surviving. Um, For as long as we've been human, indeed many, many species um, are, yes, of course, concerned about survival, but there's so much more to life. One, I think, thing we can instantly point out is that some of the earliest human artifacts were not functional. We've got a whole series of uh, perforated shells which were used almost certainly strung on beads, used strung on, uh, they were strung as beads to make uh, ornamental um, artifacts. Um, So the earliest things that mattered to people in a sense were for decorative purposes. That is, they're about who you are. They're expressing your a particular way you are in the world and your relationship to stuff around you such that you want to put it on your body, you want to hang it from your body and show it off to other people. Uh, And I think there's a message there about um, a lot of uh, our attitude towards things which is that it's always been more than function. Um, Another example that I like to think of here is uh, early metals. Um, You might think it's perfectly appropriate, a common view, to think that early metallurgy is about function. That is, that metals offer uh, a better, more efficient degree of certain kinds of functionality over stone tools. But it's clear from the prehistoric archeological record that the earliest metallurgy, uh, copper using, it was very little to do with function, efficiency and a greater degree of, what can we say, sharp edges in the world. It wasn't about that. Um, Copper is soft. Um, It's not as good in many ways as stone for achieving certain ends. So what did it offer? Well, it's kind of straightforward really. It's um, shiny and a lovely red color. It looked good. The role of customization has become absolutely a big deal um, in our lives today in spite of that generic nature of the artifact. I mean, every iPhone is essentially the same as every other iPhone. Um, And yet, in spite of that, they are yours. The individual iPhone is yours because you can customize it and it gives you an individual window on the world or an individualized window on the world. I think that's one of the great attractions of gadgetry today, but it is by no means new. Uh, one, I wonder if you could call this gadgetry. Here's a bit of a thought I'm having about, going back to the Bronze Age, I was mes- mentioning um, metallurgy before. Um, one of the things that happens across Europe, uh, across the Bronze Age of Europe, you see the emergence, the development of a relatively standardized set of equipment that goes with being a warrior aristocrat. The warrior lord of the Bronze Age of Northern Europe Uh, had a standardized set of equipment, and it's not unfamiliar to us now uh, for all sorts of reasons, including uh, fantasy games today. Um, But it's uh, the warrior weaponry of helmet and body armor, the great sword, spear, um, and such. Um, Included in that material, though, is also a series of grooming instruments. They had um, brushes, combs, uh, pins to hold, cloaks on, and articles for personal um, grooming. Ear scoops as well as combs, for example. This standardized kit is found right over Europe, uh, north, south, east, west. Yet, um, every particular manifestation of this standardized equipment is different. So there's always a way of making your sword slightly different or your combination of goods, yours, rather than someone else's. So the space within this general repertoire of goods, uh, space for you to be unique. Um, so, and that is something I think we see a great deal of today. It's how do you take how do, you become, how, are you, how do you be an individual in a group? How can you be a distinctive person within a broader social group? And often it's done with particular ways of dealing with artifacts and goods. The distinction between work and play, work and leisure, is a relatively recent one. It's one certainly that's at the heart of contemporary experience uh, because, you know, there's a radical separation made between the two. That has not been the case in most societies. And that, I think, also applies to those concepts of playfulness, of experiment, of making trials uh, in the world, and that's how I would uh, categorize the likes of toys um, and playfulness, it's it's this uh, attitude towards the world. I think we're probably just too trapped by that old modernist notion that form should follow function. But that was a slogan by you know, various design schools um, to promote their own way of making things. Um, and it isn't the truth. Um, I think often, frankly, thinking of function versus style, versus play, versus emotion or whatever, or meaning. I think this just obscures things. It's not that they're not useful concepts by no means, but to think primarily in that way just leads you up the wrong path when you could be thinking um, much more about the richness of artifacts and the manifold nature of their connections with people rather than this rather more unidimensional way of understanding goods and design.
2: You can find out more about Michael Shanks and his work at Stanford in the Metamedia Lab at metamedia.stanford.edu. from when I was very little of coming home from school one day to find my mom and younger sister playing with this set of tiles at the dining room table. It was this cool kit that had lots of different colored and shaped pieces of wood that you could sort and unsort and put in different groups. My sister was pushing piles of tiles together and then pulling them apart, counting them each time. Being the excited third grader I was, I pointed and went, Mom, she's adding. My mom gave me a stern look and said, no, she isn't. She's putting piles together. I wondered after that why my mom was so protective of my sister knowing that what she was doing was math. I think now she was worried about scaring my sister off. What she was doing then had no relationship to the competition and scariness of school. It was just fun. But as soon as this was something she had to do, like homework, it wouldn't be fun anymore and she wouldn't want to do it. My mom wanted to keep my sister playing with math as long as she could so she could learn it with something fun. And maybe it worked, because my sister is now seriously thinking about majoring in math in college. Little kids like my sister in the glorious pre-homework phases of life only have one thing they need to do, play. In fact, according to toy designer Jessica Zarin Kesson, it's their job to be playing. In the second story of our show, Jessica tells us about how playful activity is important to physical and emotional development, especially when that child is disabled. As a designer, Jessica was drawn towards making toys for children who have some kind of disability. I visited her at a product show on the Stanford campus and in her office in San Francisco. The Cool Products Expo that happens every year at Stanford is a pretty great event where designers from all different fields come together to showcase what they've done. I got there right when it started, and it was already flooded with people visiting the diverse set of booths. I walked past displays of software that helps you learn musical notes, a plastic lid that makes paper coffee cups spill proof, and lamps that can sense changes in your mood. In the middle of the crowded room was this table, covered in colorful pamphlets, a stack of different shaped building blocks in all kinds of crazy configurations, these beanbag looking things that had snaps on the end, and a plastic ring filled with beads. The woman behind the booth was smiling brightly at people who passed by, clearly in her element, and enjoying the excitement of the room.
1: Hey Jessica! How are you? How are you? I'm good! So, so what are you up to? I am just, we're just getting going here. A few people have come by, nothing majorly exciting yet, but um, apparently we're open and excited to be here.
2: Jessica Zarin-Kesson created a company a few years ago called Development by Design, or DBD. She and her business partner, Julie, make beautiful toys for children, but their toys serve a unique purpose. Each of the toys are specially designed to serve kids with special needs, and they cover all kinds of special needs, from autism to kids in wheelchairs to the blind. A lot of the products at the expo were more for fun than anything else, and clearly these toys were for fun too. But there was also something more substantial to what Jessica was offering. I was genuinely surprised to find out that Jessica's company is one of very few in the world that caters to special needs kids in the form of toys and not just therapy equipment. The market Jessica has chosen for her toys is a pretty niche one, but it seems to fit her
1: personality like a glove. Well, I remember being in high school and saying to my mom, when she asked me what I wanted to do, um, I want to combine engineering, art, and psychology. And she looked at me like I was insane. And she's like, yeah, good luck. And then I got to Stanford and they had this magical thing called product design, which magically combined engineering, art, and psychology, which I was like, wow, this is perfect. I'd always worked with people with special needs. Um, I worked in pediatric wards in high school. I worked at the American School for the Deaf when I was in high school. Um, as a camp counselor I guess is the best way to phrase it, that's the simplified version, for kids who are deaf with a lot of other special needs as well. I was an interpreter and teaching assistant for Kathy Haas, who's a deaf professor at Stanford throughout when I was there. I mean, it's sort of one of those things I've always done. And so, on all the projects where we had to go explore and do need-finding stuff, my groups were always the ones that were going off to work with people with some sort of disability. first toy I actually did as my senior thesis at Stanford in product design so our assignment was go find a need and solve it I think was how they phrased it so what I did was I decided to do a map for kids who are blind so this was my brilliant plan so I volunteered at the California School for the Blind over in Fremont a couple days a week and within my first visit or two quickly realized that these kids were not at the cognitive ability to be able to read a map no matter what I did to the map so it became a cognitive development toy instead. So the problems that these kids were having trouble with were things like cause and effect. Like to a blind child, it doesn't exist tilts in their hands. So you saw your mom get the milk out of the fridge, and you knew that's where it came from. To them, it didn't exist till they were holding on to it. So they needed to learn that they could control their environment.
2: The toy itself was a group of four interlocking squares that had a track running through all four. The child would put a stylus into the track, and as the stylus moved, the toy would make feedback sounds that could be recorded and customized for each child. There was one particular boy in the class, about six years old, who was struggling with the sort of basic map reading concepts, things like up, down, left, and right. Teachers and therapists had tried a number of different things, but the boy didn't seem to respond positively to any of them. Jessica ended up focusing most of her energy on him, modeling and remodeling the toy to try and make it better, trying to
1: help this boy learn. So for him, we had to go, go up, go down, go left, go right. You know, the teacher was working with me, and I would go back twice a week with a new prototype every time. And every time I went back, they would test it for me and be like, oh, well, if you did, this isn't really going to help because of this. And I would iterate and continue and keep bringing things back. So I'd work with the music therapist and the teachers and the occupational therapist and the kids and the parents and anybody who would listen to me. His teacher, so he was sitting sort of on his teacher's lap, more or less, and they had this on a table, like a little kid-sized table, and they were using the square one so as you go up everything it was telling you which way to go and so his teacher was doing hand over hand with him so the little boy's hand was on the stylus and the teacher's hand was on top of it and so the teacher would sort of talk him through it as the toy was saying the same things and you know the teacher of course would be like so what does that mean and try and figure it out and eventually the little boy started to understand it and started to understand the idea which was just a very really amazing thing to see i felt like i understood the point of product design i mean that's i guess the best way to put it and i wanted to make products that would make a difference.
2: When Jessica graduated from Stanford with her degree in product design, she got a temporary job at Pottery Barn Kids. The temporary job turned into a permanent job, which turned into a job at Pottery Barn, Maine, mostly designing things like glassware and other tabletop items. Jessica says she liked the job just fine. It was a lot of fun designing beautiful things. But there came a moment where it no longer felt like the right place for her.
1: The day that I decided I wasn't going to learn anything new, I started writing a business plan for my company. And so I did that nights and weekends for the first six months while I tried to raise some money and worked at Pottery Barn during the day. I was learning a ton when I was there most of the time. But then the day I was like, I'm not going to learn anything else was the day that I was, okay, I'm bored now. Time to go.
2: But for this pretty ambitious business plan, Jessica was going to need backup. She had tons of design experience, but she knew she was lacking in the disability-specific training she'd need to make successful products. She was in a sign language group at the time so she could keep up the fluency she gained in high school. And while she was there, she met Julie.
1: I was doing this sign language chat group once a week, which was literally a bunch of kids in their 20s and 30s sitting around chatting. The only role was no voices at the table. And um, one of the girls in the group was an occupational therapist. And I kind of knew what that meant, but not really. And so I brought her the business plan one day and I was like, hi, I know you do occupational therapy with kids. Would you mind reading this? At this point, literally, I'd known her for a year and I'd never heard her voice. Um, She came back the next week. She's like, I love this. I want to be involved. And so that's Julie, who's my occupational therapist now, who I adore and is one of my best friends. Jessica and Julie work in this pretty
2: awesome building with a bunch of other designers. The walls are painted bright colors, and the layout of the space has a very modern quality. It's clear that a bunch of designers work here. Everyone shares a common workspace. They have separate desk areas, but there are no walls separating them. Jessica says she loves the kind of collaboration that happens when you have a bunch of designers all working in one space, even when they're working on totally different projects.
1: It's actually great, because when you have a small business and you're working pretty much alone or with one other person all the time, It's a great way to get other people's feedback and other people's advice. So when I have a problem with an engineering thing that I don't know about, I can walk across the room and get an answer. Or when you're doing a small business, there's all these really random things that you have to know, like what the State Board of Equalization is for and things like that, which really there's no other reason to know. And so it's great that everybody here is sort of doing it together, and so someone always has an answer. And it's just more fun because, honestly, if you work at home all day, alone every day, you go a little loopy and start asking the cat for business advice, and that's just a bad thing. So it's a good, like... Having coworkers without having coworkers.
2: The process that Jessica and Julie use to come up with their products is as organic and collaborative as the space they work in. It usually begins with the two of them sitting at a table together with a gigantic piece of blank paper between them. They try to let the ideas flow, even the completely crazy ones, because they never know which ones just might pan out. Jessica and Julie are innovators in their field, so they have to start with a no holds barred, completely free
1: form brainstorming process. We start off with a very basic mind map, which is a brainstorming technique where you sort of write one thing in the middle and then you just branch off. And you can write crazy things on there. Like, it doesn't matter. I mean, some of our things couldn't say something really random like, I'm gonna build moon shoes that make you bounce to the moon. I mean, that's fine. I mean, but those are the ideas that lead, even though they're insane, are gonna lead to the good ideas. And then we look through it, usually with a lot of laughing because there's usually some goofy things in there. And we circle the three or four things that are somewhat could lead to something else and then we sort of do more brainstorms on those and we're like, then we start making really janky prototypes of things and figuring things out and we're like, all right, well, that's definitely not going to work and how about this? And, you know, we, we act things out and we, we draw things, we draw prototypes, we build prototypes, we do all sorts of things. They're usually quick and dirty and, I mean, uh, if you look at our snap bags, which are these bean bags that snap together, our original prototype for those were decapitated beanie babies filled with kitty litter. I mean, It worked. Jessica has four
2: fully developed toys that she sells on her website and in disability catalogs around the country, and she has a fifth that's coming out sometime soon. Many of them feel somewhat familiar but have an interesting twist, like the snap bags, which are heavier than normal bean bags and can snap together on these fingerlings that extend off the sides. There's also a collection of game ideas they call Play Packs, and a round tube filled with small beads called the Explorer Ring. I can say, in complete honesty, that as a 21-year-old college student, I wanted to play with these things. They're just plain cool. My personal favorite were the first product that Jessica came up with and also happened to be Jessica's favorite, the Bumpity Blocks.
1: We have lots of toys. (laughs) Okay, Um, so these are the Bumpity Blocks. They're the textured weighted foam blocks. So the extra weight and texture gives you more control when building. So you can pretty much stack them in any way. These are yeah, they look, they look a lot lighter than they feel, which is kind of cool. They have um, weights inside of them specifically to make them heavier. But that's one of the things, it's, that's a challenge. Because when you see a package like this on the shelf, it's hard to, for a parent to look at that and say, oh, those are going to be weighted and help my child. So communicating that idea from a package when you don't pick it up is a lot harder than if you have them out. Um, I've got
2: a whole bunch of, so there's like T-shapes and X's and so it's kind kind of Mm -hmm. Tetris-y.
1: And the reason that they're um, weird shapes is because children um, with autism tend to stim and they line things up over and over again. So they'll just put blocks in line over and over. But if you have all these funky shapes, you can't really do that. So that's the reason for the shapes. Um also just means you can build funky things with them um, and you could feel the texture is very grippy and they grip to each other really easily they're also all only two colors so that kids with vi- who get overstimulation from visual input um, don't have a problem with them and if you notice all of our colors are slightly off Um, They're not primary colors because a lot of our kids are older and so their cognitive, emotional, um, developmental ages are not always in line and so we don't want these to look like preschool toys. There's no pictures of baby Elmo on anything, you know, and that's for a reason. Also, mm-hmm. don't believe in making toys that are stigmatized to be these are for kids with special needs only, and they're different, and therefore they should have separate toys. That's not how I work. Um, so things like if you look at our Bumpity Blocks, they are textured, weighted foam blocks. So the extra weight and texture in them give kids more control when building. So this actually came about because we were watching teachers use full cereal boxes with their kids, uh, because a wooden block is too light for the kid to control. So we're using full cereal boxes because that was the right weight for the kids to be able to control easier. We're like, okay, well, if they're using full cereal boxes, we can certainly design something to fix that. And then we added a really bumpy, grippy texture to them. So all of a sudden, kids who have poor motor function can use blocks when they've never been able to use them previously. But typically developing kids just think they're cool and easy to build with, and so they build bigger, crazier things. So it's sort of that's the philosophy that we're looking for. That's the way we design. Universal design is the philosophy that if you design for the extremes, it's actually better for everybody. So if you look at something like... Good Grips, the OXO kitchen utensils, those were originally designed by Sam Farber for his wife because she had arthritis in her hands and she couldn't peel the potatoes anymore. And this was a big problem, so he made these, the black squishy ones that we all have in our houses, right, um, he made those for his wife with arthritis. Now those are the best kitchen utensils out there because they're more comfortable for everybody as a result. And we all use them whether or not we have arthritis. Um, So it's sort of that concept that Designing for these streams makes it better for everybody. So that's my philosophy of design.
3: When you're designing something new, do you focus more on the, um, on the educational aspect of it or on more of like a playful, fun aspect, or, or does that just sort of go hand in hand?
1: Um, we do both. Definitely both are completely necessary for all of our toys. They're definitely toys. We're not trying to make therapy equipment. We're not trying to make adaptive technology. We're trying to make toys. But the fact that you're developing skills while you're playing with them is completely crucial to be in our line.
2: Jessica thrives in a place like the Cool Products Expo, where she gets to talk about designing for people with disabilities. It's a surprisingly small field within product design, and it's true that most of the other products people are displaying here are geared towards people without disabilities. Getting to share how important her brand of design is to her, and to disabled communities, is really rewarding. For Jessica, it's not people who have problems, it's designs that do. And the fact that she can
1: help fix them just makes it all that much more exciting. Um, I've been to a bunch of conferences that are designed for disability oriented, because there aren't very many people in the world that do it. Um, and there was one especially that was an outdoors conference. So it was to get everyone outdoors, whether you have a disability or not. So my first time outdoor rock climbing, the guy belaying for me was blind, and the two guys I was with were double amputees, and I was passing Did out Did that legs. freak you out at all? No, it didn't freak me out at all. It freaked these two 15-year-old boys on the next pitch uh, out a little bit when they looked over, and I was passing out legs, I think. Um, didn't phase me on any level, actually. Um, one of the guys there, he's a professor at MIT, and he has both of his legs amputated, um, says there's no such thing as a disabled person, only disabled technologies. And I think that's a really important thing. I mean, if you design things that everybody can use, it's going to help everybody, and it's not... There's no reason a quadriplegic shouldn't be rock climbing. If they want to rock climb, they should rock climb. We just need to figure out how to let them do it. And I've seen it happen. I've watched quadriplegics rock climb. It's pretty cool. (laughs)
2: Jessica's toys have recently become available in the SF MoMA gift shop. You can also find them in special needs and educational catalogs, as well as lots of toy stores around the country. Visit Jessica's website, Development by Design, at dbdtoys.com.
3: The one that you pine for. And they tossed
4: me out and set me down on the Hawthorne and Howard. When I thought I'd found the girl who's bound to give me love by the hour. There might not be a next time. Be my gold club girl, nursing on my time. And I'm missing my Friday fight night, I think I might not quite make it through. That's just when
3: you walk on, try to speak, but it seems to talk wrong. And when the shock's gone, turns out, so are you.
2: One of the most important aspects of the playful attitude towards the world, as Michael Shanks would say, is experimentation and a willingness to try new things. The world of circuit bending music is one full of experiment, and as a result, some just plain weird sounds. I only heard about it pretty recently, and from what I understand, circuit bending basically consists of rewiring various circuit boards inside things that make sound, and finding out what new and different sounds the reworked electronics can make. It's very much about the discovery of hidden electronic capabilities, finding things in the circuits we didn't know were there. One of the most popular things to circuit bend is toy instruments for children. So picture the scene, a grown person standing in the middle of a busted-up toy keyboard, fiddling with all kinds of fancy electronic equipment, trying to make the weirdest and most interesting sounds they can. It's like a high-voltage kindergarten. In the third story of our show, Mike Millantine and Heather Roberts take a look at circuit-bending culture and how grown-ups are learning to play and acquire new, funkier, and weirder tastes.
5: I can still remember sitting in my parents' garage during my freshman year of high school, circuit bending my Casio keyboard. I could have used any toy, but I had conveniently found my Casio in a pile of junk next to my dad's workbench. I had turned the toy on, ripped off the back cover, and was connecting random parts of the circuitry together with a loose wire. When the Casio made an interesting noise, I soldered in a permanent connection with a switch. As a result, I wound up with an instrument capable of making sounds I had never heard before. At the time, I had little interest in exploring the musical avant-garde. I couldn't stand circuit bending. In fact, I pretty much exclusively listened to popular radio. To this day, I'm not entirely sure why I chose this time to build my first circuit-bent instrument, but it probably had something to do with me being 14 years old and bored. In any case, there I was. Now fast forward a few years. All my friends call me an elitist because I can't stand popular radio anymore. Also, I've gotten back into circuit bending. Everyone has had an experience similar to the one I had. Something sounds grating at first, but over time, you grow to love it. Does this mean that humans are drawn to dissonance? If so, why? What makes the dissonant sounds of circuit bending so appealing to me? Obviously, Circuit bending isn't appealing to everyone. It isn't even appealing to all musicians. I don't think circuit bending really sounds musical at all to me. My friend Angus Bacala writes a lot of electronic music. It's not musical, but what the, the instruments they're using um, and how they go about uh, making the noises they do is actually creative and, um, and different. This really resonated with me. When I was in the garage using my hands to make music no one had ever heard before, it was an experience. But unlike Angus, I liked listening to it, too. ¶¶¶¶ figured a good way to find out why I liked the music was to talk to the first circuit bender and ask him why he liked it. So I called him up, all the way out in Cincinnati.
6: I, I was born Cabase Reed Gazala.
5: Reed is sometimes referred to as the godfather of circuit bending. He discovered the process completely by accident
6: in the 1960s. Yeah, I was 14 or 15 when a small transistorized amplifier uh, that I bought at Radio Shack shorted out in my, in my desk drawer, and making some of the most unusual electronic sounds I had ever heard. I mean, I just thought it was fantastic.
5: Reed told me why he thinks people enjoy circuit bending.
6: In, in one easy evening, and it is easy, it's, a, it's the simplest uh, electronic art that, that there is, a circuit bender can create an experimental instrument capable of producing sounds and music that no one else has ever heard before.
5: When Reed said this, I found myself nodding in agreement. Circuit bending is interesting because it's a simple and satisfying way to make new music. Reed went on to tell me about his first circuit bent performance, which took place in a neighborhood church used as a community center.
6: We were we were a hippie band in an Elvis audience, and, you know, something, something had to give. We were there because the church had a stage, and they said any neighborhood band is, is free to come in and play, so... We were a neighborhood band, and 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 we went into play. But um, when I saw a Bible hit our keyboardist in the side of the head, I, I knew that you know there was no longer any doubt we were in we were in trouble. Well, as we left the stage, uh, we were attacked by by this gang of maybe oh eight or ten people, and and my frail circuit bend instrument it, it was smashed by these hoodlums. Uh, I remember us, uh, me with my instrument under my coat, it was it was cold out, uh, running to the van with all these guys after us, my instrument had already been smashed, and we piled in this Volkswagen van that I had painted psychedelic for my friend, and uh, we drove off into the night with that uh, very scary uh, experience under under our belt.
5: Reed's audience responded to circuit bending a lot like my friend's. Whether or not they appreciated the process, they definitely didn't appreciate the music. I needed more information to understand why I enjoyed circuit-bent music. Appreciation of music is so personal that I thought it must have to do with something going on inside my head. Besides, our perception of sound really boils down to neurons in the brain. So I headed over to the Neuroscience Institute at Stanford, where I spoke to Sridhar Dvarajan.
0: The sound is essentially a, a physical, acoustic vibration.
5: Sridhar is a fourth-year graduate student who studies music's effect on the brain. His lab is full of expensive-looking machines that observe your brain's activity during different exercises and experiences. When I sat down with him, he told me that one can tell which sounds will be pleasing simply by examining the physical waves.
0: Consonant sounds um, have frequencies that are, which are related by integer, integral ratios.
5: Consonants and dissonance are musical terms that refer to how pleasing two notes sound when they're played together. For example, an octave sounds consonant, or is a minor seventh sounds dissonant.
0: Like, for instance, if you play two notes together and they sound consonant, they're very often related by um, an integral ratio, like if one frequency is f, the other frequency will be 2f, two, two or the ratios can be 3f to 5f, and so forth. So they're, they're related by very simple integer ratios. And dissonant sounds are usually not related by those simple ratios, they're related by more complex ratios.
5: Should I explained how consonant sounds are physically gentler on the eardrum than dissonant sounds.
0: It vibrates a uh, a transducer in your ear, uh, which is a small, which is a series of actually small bones, and then that's followed by a little membrane called the basilar membrane, which also vibrates and decomposes the frequencies. So the, it decomposes the sound into component frequencies. Uh, if the frequencies are in integral ratios, your basilar membrane is going to have a much easier task to perform.
5: So your ear has to do less work when it hears consonant sounds. This seems to imply that our physiology is biased to prefer consonant sounds. Does this make dissonant music, like circuit bending, inherently hard to listen to? This would mean that our physiology limits us to always liking the same music. I talked to Reed back in Cincinnati about this. He says that the music we like can
6: change. You know, when I was initially breaking into music, I was just a drummer, and we were playing cover tunes so that we could play out at different parties and stuff. And um, that music was appreciated by that audience because that was the music that they expected and that they appreciated. Now, Reed says, experimental
5: music is much more common.
6: Uh, you, you can hear experimental music now in commercials, whether it's Blue Man or who knows what, and in, in uh, movie soundtracks, and all over college and pirate radio, you know. So, so the exposure curve, if we can call it that, is, isn't as drastic as it was 40 years ago.
5: As a result, even circuit bending can be found in the mainstream nowadays.
6: I've designed for everyone from Peter Gabriel to the Rolling Stones. I've designed for Blur and Faust and King Crimson and Chris Cutler and Coatai and a lot, a lot, a lot of these well-known guys. This really got me thinking.
5: It seemed like Reed was saying that the more you are exposed to a certain sound, the more you're able to appreciate it despite the
4: dissonance. <laughs>
5: I asked Shridhar back at the Neuroscience Institute about how exposure to sound affects your appreciation. He seemed to agree with Reed.
0: He explained what happens in your brain when you listen to music. You actually have two auditory is one on the left hemisphere and one on the right hemisphere, and uh, presumably in a very broad sense, these are the regions that process the, uh, uh, the basic sound information. There's another structure called the hippocampus, which is an important center for memory, and that might actually be involved in, in interacting with the auditory cortex in order to retrieve the information.
5: So sound and memory are closely related. Just like every time you hear the bridal chorus, more commonly known as Here Comes the Bride, you probably think of the last wedding you went to. Whenever you hear a certain type of sound, your brain automatically recalls memories associated with it.
0: Some aspects of consonance and dissonance can actually arise out of our cultural upbringing, out of nurture, in terms of, so for instance, I have been brought up in an Indian tradition of listening to Indian classical music, and some sounds that sound very consonant to me might actually sound very dissonant to someone coming from a Western perspective. So it's both the physical aspect properties of of the sound itself and um, the way your brain has been molded to kind of perceive certain sounds as being more consonant than others.
5: So your brain can shape your perception of consonants and dissonance based on your cultural upbringing. But there are also historical examples of change in musical taste. When Igor Stravinsky first performed the Rite of Spring in 1913, the audience rioted. Now, it's one of the most well-respected pieces of contemporary classical music. If culture and historical context affect what sounds you perceive as consonant or dissonant, can they also affect the type of music that you like? Shridar says yes. And it's all about patterns.
0: Your brain is this really complex thing, always looking for patterns. It's, it's always looking to make sense of the world. It's always looking for patterns. And if it sees something that forms a pattern, it'll immediately place that into a, a context. And if it resembles music, then so be it. But if it does not, form into a, does not fall easily into a pattern, if it's very hard for the brain to parse, then it'll just be lost.
5: You like music you can find patterns in. Sounds reasonable enough. But apparently, if you're going to like it, music has to break the patterns too. It has to have just the right amount of predictability.
0: If there's no way you can predict the future, it is a case of learned helplessness. You will just give up hope at some point. And if the future is too predictable, it becomes very, very uninteresting. But if it's variable enough that you can predict it at some times and not predict it at at other times, there's enough uh, material in there to keep you interested in going for a while. According to Sridhar, for music to sound good, it must
5: strike a balance between satisfying your expectations and defying them. If a piece of music is too simple, it's boring. On the other hand, if it's too complex, your brain just gives up trying to comprehend it. Of course, this balance between predictability and complexity is different for everybody. No two people have the same experience with sound. With this knowledge of music, the brain, and predictability, we can better understand why people react differently to circuit bending. In fact, a lot of circuit-bent music seems to be based around unpredictability. Read Gazzala.
6: If you look at an encant or a circuit-bent speak-and-spell...
5: The speak-and-spell is a toy made by Texas Instruments. When it was introduced in 1978, it contained the first single-chip voice synthesizer. It's one of the most commonly circuit-bent toys.
6: There's a looping switch on there, and when you throw the looping switch, you know it's probably going to loop, but you never know what form that loop will take.
5: So the speak-and-spell does play a looping pattern. However, the internal structure of the loop is never predictable. Wouldn't chance elements like these turn a lot of people off? They certainly turned off Reed's first audience in that church back in the 1960s. To answer this question, I talked to Mike Rosenthal, who has probably seen more first reactions to circuit bending than just about anyone. Since 2004, Mike has organized an annual international gathering of circuit benders called Bent Festival. In the past, the festival was hosted in an art gallery right off of Broadway in New York. Apparently, a lot of people came in off the street while waiting for a show to start and had no idea what was going on. However. Mike was prepared. He gave these people toys and showed them how to
6: circuit bend. And, you know, there was all sorts of reactions. A lot of people were super excited about it. A lot of people were kind of nervous, a little unsure. But definitely, you know, within five or ten minutes, you'd have these people that came in really kind of reticent. uh, Just all of a sudden, you know, they would be missing their show, and they'd be, you know, sort of ankle-deep in toys and screwdrivers and potentiometers and just sort of digging around on the insides of this stuff.
5: People liked circuit bending almost right away. This was the last thing I expected. But then I asked Mike why he organized a festival about circuit bending instead of some other type of electronic music.
6: You get a lot of performers who are basically sitting there with their face in a laptop uh, for half an hour and lots of crazy noises are coming out and you don't really know what's going on and maybe they're doing something interesting and and maybe they're hitting play in iTunes and, you know, there's no real, there's nothing for the audience to engage with, um... And so I really started trying to investigate other forms of electronic music where it was a bit more transparent.
5: Mike eventually found circuit bending. Most experimental music was unsuccessful for Mike because the audience couldn't understand what was going on. They didn't know why certain sounds were being produced by musicians behind laptops and couldn't guess at which sounds were coming next. In contrast, the people at Bent Festival got hands-on experience with circuit bending by constructing their own instruments. They learned what types of sound to expect from a circuit bend instrument, and circuit bending became a bit more predictable. Predictable enough that they liked it. Now I get it. I'm like those people at Bent Festival. Once I had the opportunity to rip apart a toy and make a circuit-bent instrument, it started to grow on me. See, when I circuit-bent that Casio back in high school, it didn't just make any dissonant sound. It made my dissonant sound, one that no one else had ever heard before. And that sense of ownership gave me patience enough to expose myself to circuit-bending until I understood the sound and enjoyed it. Now that you've learned all about circuit bending, maybe you have a desire to go out and build a circuit bent instrument for yourself. Or any instrument. Maybe you'll build a drum set out of trash cans. Or You'll pluck the strings inside a piano instead of hitting the keys, but whatever you do, it'll be you doing it. And if you're like me, you'll quickly discover a whole world of sound you never knew existed. And that world of new, as of yet unheard sounds, none of it is inherently unmusical. I think Reed Gazala put it best. I asked him what he thought defined music. His answer:
6: Just people. You know, in the end, music is in the ear of the beholder.
2: Mike Melantine and Heather Roberts are undergraduates at Stanford. Today's program was produced by myself, with help from Bonnie Swift and Jonah Willingans. Thanks to Michael Shanks, Jessica Zarin-Kesson, Mike Melantine, and Heather Roberts. Thanks also to Liz Bradfield and Dan Hirsch for their production assistance. Original music for the show was written and produced by Kissing Johnny, Dubious Ranger, and Nimbleweed. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week for Unexpected Superheroes, stories of comic book crusaders popping up in the last places you'd think to look. For No Work and All Play and the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Hannah Krakauer. Thanks for listening, and go have some fun.